enter with that. I mean, yeah. we could, but we were just playing uh, Mike Tomlin over and over again. Um, but welcome to the RSP cast, Mark Schofield, TD Wire, all the illustrious podcasts that you can hear them on. Scoes Throws. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. And of course, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio is available. I'm going to be updating the rankings and projections both for the three-year for the this rsp pre-draft and post-draft subscribers and for the dynasty projection subscribers i'll be doing that at the end of this week um and if you want to continue to get on that they are available at mountwaldman.com i guarantee you that um you are going to be very pleased with the work that you get from that um you know it's it's got a you know very evergreen level of um content i would guess we would put that yeah. in you know it's a good word it is content that's the word okay. i think so you know sunday monday is like one long day for for us mark so yeah. so i'm still kind of getting over that but uh but let's get into that because a guy who's probably still getting over it too is patrick mahomes and you know people are saying he's struggling and certainly for a guy who's thrown 50 touchdowns and 12 interceptions is his best like you know TD to interception kind of season and 12 is his worst ever total. And he already has eight right now and or nine right now, I think it yeah. is. And eight of them came in the past five games. He's had like two game, uh, three games with two interceptions. You know, he's not looking quite the same. It's kind of more like the, the Brett Favre type of thing that I think I know you and I probably thought might be, the early stages of his development is like wild Brett Favre, but still with the high touchdown rates. And last week against the Titans was like a total meltdown for the, for the offense. So why is, you know, maybe it's fair to say that why is Patrick Mahomes and the chiefs having issues that they haven't had before? Maybe that's a better way of phrasing it. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot going on. It's not just Mahomes. I mean, it's sort of whenever there's a situation like this where a quarterback isn't performing sort of up to the level we expected, you know, Mahomes is held to a different standard than others. Like he puts up video game numbers, the numbers he's putting up right now. I mean, they're still in many cases good. It's just, it's not Patrick Mahomes. It's not what we're used to seeing from him. So it kind of skews our scale in a sense, but whenever something like that happens, we want to attribute a cause. A lot of people theorize that it was the cover two stuff that they're seeing the two high safeties, you know, keeping people deep, playing with an advantage in the numbers in the secondary, dropping seven, dropping eight at times. Um, so people are saying, look, they can't throw against cover two. They need to run the football. I mean, that's part of it. It'd be nice if they could run the football more efficiently. So you get defenses out of that cover two stuff. They start bringing that safety down to the box. But you look at, and I wrote this last week, perfect time. And no, they don't have a cover two problem because you watch his interceptions or what he's throwing against cover two. And really, it's a Patrick Mahomes has a God mode problem. I think that's the <laughs> issue right now. Because when he's throwing interceptions against cover two, cover four, middle field, open cover zero, it's not, oh, I got fooled by cover two. It's, I think I can do something obscenely silly with my arm. I could like try to make a throw when I'm falling down or try to make a throw when I'm diving out of bounds and stuff like that. Or passes are going through receivers' hands. Like he had one against the cover two look that was right through Tyreek Hill's hands. I mean, so I think it's more a quicksand problem. How about that? 
they're struggling and he's trying to just throw them out of it. I'm going to just throw us out of these struggles and he's doing too much. I mean, there are times when he might just have to say, look, you know, a couple weeks ago, sure, I could try that throw. But right now, I have to hit singles and doubles. Like, I can't hit grand slams with every throw. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And it's, you know, it's not much different than what I saw from Tua Tungavailoa on a couple of throws against Atlanta last week. Yeah. You know, and I think what the reason why I think Mahomes is struggling is, I mean, you can argue individual points up front with Mitchell Schwartz or Jeff Schwartz and, and you know, who's struggling and who's not with the Chiefs. But here's the here's the absolute truth of the matter. Tennessee, as a good example, and other teams as well, are able to get home with Patrick Mahomes at the top of his drop yeah. by rushing four defenders. When yeah. you can get a when you can get a quality pass rush where the quarterback can't even get his back foot in the ground at the top of his drop without having to make an adjustment, and usually it's multiple points of pressure, interior and edge pressure then you're cutting off two points of escape for a quarterback, and now he's forced to have to maneuver. And it's not even just maneuvering, because we know Patrick Mahomes can maneuver, but it's the fact that because they're playing too deep, and the routes that I've seen are longer developing routes, then nobody has turned their head yet to even um, you know, look back to the quarterback because they're being covered and they're in the middle of a stem when Patrick Mahomes is under pressure. So who's he going to throw to? Oh, maybe the two guys who are also covered on the underneath routes. But from what I've also seen is that there are routes that it seems the way the, you know, and it's not with every play, but there are a lot of plays where the the outlet routes are on the same side of the field, both breaking to the same side of the field instead of different sides of the field. So Mahomes has to go in one direction, to even hit that route. So, it's, it's kind of strange, you know, I think it's a combination of both that when, you know, when you're getting interior pressure consistently, your your routes aren't designed to break open early enough for him to for him to hit the quick outlet. And when they are, they're both going to the same side of the field and there's a, a you know, and they're well covered, then Mahomes does have to create or throw the ball away. And he has to, and some of his creations have been, you know, have been more young Frankenstein, you know, in yeah. terms of what he's done. So it's not a, it, you know, it's a combination of all those things where they're pushing him to do things that he shouldn't do. And, and so he has to take ownership of that. He has to take ownership of the fumbles, you know, th- those types of things. But yeah, it has been a confluence of Tyreek Hill dropping the ball or Nicole Hardman dropping the ball or, you know, or the pass rush. So it it's understandable not to place it on one thing. And I remember the first game he ever played and profiling. And I look back because I remember the play that impressed everyone in the media analysis community was a cover two throw where he split the safeties against Denver, you know, and he's, he's played against just about every type of coverage. So it's not, it's, it's that cover two is fought. They're a, they're being able to play cover two because pass rushes are getting home. Well, that's just it, right? What what's the like holy grail of defensive play? Get pressure with four so you can drop seven. It's the yeah. easiest, most pat road answer. If you have it like like you go on the radio, you do a podcast, and they're like, Oh, how are the Bills gonna win this week? 
get pressure with four so you can drop seven in coverage. It's like the easiest thing to say. They're getting it every week now. Yeah. They can give up pressure with four, and teams are dropping seven into coverage, sometimes cover two, cover four, whatever. It, it's it's not as pat as, oh, it's just cover two that's giving the problems. Yeah. It's more than that. And this is why, too, if we think about the draft, why there are a lot of teams that believe in let's build the trenches first. If we can yeah. get pressure, we can help out our our okay to good but not great secondary in terms of what they do. I, I, I am always reminded of Mike Mayock when the the Dolphins traded up for Deion Jordan years ago. And it was a kind of a shocker of a move. And Mike Mayock said the most, and I've used this line before, the most important place on a football field is seven yards behind the center. You need guys that can protect that spot, guys that can throw from that spot, and guys that can attack that spot. Offensive, defensive lines, and quarterback. Yep. Well said. So why? Nice little segue there. Yeah, exactly. Because because really, we have a we have Pianet Sewell, who's played yep. very well for the Detroit Lions yep. and was a great pick for them. I think that's one of the – they absolutely needed that. But the guy that he could have gone to the Bengals, and the Bengals chose Jamar Chase, which got a little criticism because they're like, "Well, you got Tyler Boyd, you've got T. Higgins. Why do you need another receiver?" Well, as evidence against the Ravens, who like to blitz, Jaguars who try to throw zero blitzes at them, meaning yep. you know they they pressure everyone and it's man to man across the board with nobody playing over the top. Um, Joe Burrow's like, you know, as he wrote it, he, he, he quoted to a recent article, I think by Aaron Goldsmith or Charles Goldsmith. I don't remember his name for the Cincinnati Inquirer. I'm sorry, but you know, I want to credit you, but he, uh, you know, he said, you can't zero blitz me after he completed a big play to CJ Uzoma, you know, because, and that was something that teams were able to do last year. And I think a lot of it has to do with that. The offensive line is improving as evidenced by watching them basically run through the Ravens. When Samaj P. Ron gets a 46-yard touchdown, practically untouched, yeah. you know, that after Joe Mixon gets one, you, you know, it's like the holes are not only big enough for the ninja to, to go through, but it's also big enough for the Sherman tank to like, yeah. you know, to go through it. And that's a nice thing. But it's also Jamar Chase who, you know, at this point, teams can't, favor any one um, secondaries can't favor any one receiver so now you're getting true one-on-one matchups with Jamar Chase and even if it's your best cornerback like Marlon Humphrey he's gonna spank him you know and it's and it's one of those things that when that happens now it's a pick your poison situation and it creates a much more balanced defense for the Bengals to go through but that's why I think it's a better choice. Why do you think it, it, the Bengals have that argument? If you believe in wide receiver wins, they're five and two. But I mean, <laughs> obviously it's deeper than that. But, you know, what I just talked about, you know, that most important spot of the field. On the offensive side, it's about the quarterback and helping the quarterback, right? That's the thought behind making sure you build through the tensions. What else can help a quarterback? A receiver you're familiar with that could get separation – early in the down or even late in the down, you know? And, and when you talk about facing zero blitz, you, you read playbooks, they'll have, you know, progression reads for different coverages 
a lot of them, they say zero blitz, drift, and throw a touchdown. Okay, I'm going to drift, and I've got the ability to target Jamar Chase. He and I have been doing this for years together. Back shoulder throws, fade throws. You know, I think it was Derek Clawson that described Jamar Chase. He's somebody that it's weird. He's He doesn't always look open, but he's always open. Like he, He's got that ability, even if he doesn't get tremendous separation, to separate somehow at the catch point using his frame, using his strength. But I do think, though, you know, he's somebody that I think could separate early in the down. He's somebody that has experience dating back to his college days, face and press alignment. You know, that, that's one of the things that for wide receivers adjusting to life in the NFL, sometimes you've just got a lot of off coverage. You've got guys playing soft shoe technique. You're not seeing physical guys that will get in your face and try to jam you. Go back and watch 2019 LSU at Alabama, Trayvon Diggs versus Jamar Chase. I wrote about that. Everybody that watched that game, we've all watched that game 15,000 times because of who played it. That was Drago, Stallone, Moscow, Christmas Day, two guys literally throwing haymakers at each other. And, and Chase was able to at times beat not just press alignment, but jam press technique. And that seasoned him to now when you've got Marlon Humphrey in press alignment in a critical situation, you can get separation. And so I, I think it goes back to helping your quarterback, right? There are different ways to do it. We traditionally think you protect him. I was one of many that said, look, Jamar Chase is my wide receiver one, but you got to make sure you can help Joe Burrow. So I would probably take the tackle here. But they went a different direction. They felt confident in the guys they put together, and they believed that Jamar Chase helps Joe Burrow just in a different way. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent explanation about wh where you're going with that. And to add to what it is that Jamar Chase does so well, in addition to press, is the reason he's always open is he understands how to position himself when the ball is in the air. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of players who are really good prospects or even still solid NFL receivers don't do well. The jump back that he had on the fade route Go back and watch the fade route. And when he jumps, he doesn't lean backward. A lot of receivers lean backward where they're literally like, looks like they're stage diving, you know, yeah. basically doing the whole Jesus thing, you know, back yeah. into the crowd. And as a result of that, you expose your chest to the defender. You're not in control at the catch point. You, It's harder for you to be able to turn. It's harder for you to be able to stay in bounds. It's harder for you to be able to keep your feet when you do catch the ball and turn yeah. and run. And Jamar Chase understand, and that's about timing. Because if you turn too early, then you're forced to have to make that type of leap backwards if you didn't gauge the ball right. If you turn too late, then you know you're not going to be able to even reach the ball with the defender on you. So he has excellent tracking and timing, and knows how to leap so that he's leaping straight up and down and turning. And these are things that you have to practice, and he's very good at that. And then when you look at the two receivers they have, T. Higgins is a fine possession receiver who can get deep with contested catches. He's a Mike Williams type in that sense and how Mike Williams had been used a lot. Yeah, T. Higgins, I mean, he's great after the catch. He's great over the middle. But after the catch, meaning he's great, is that he has the burst to get past the first guy and a move to get past the second guy. But, he's, but if there's defenders playing over the top of him, he's not going to blow up their angles. Jamar right. Chase does everything that T. Higgins and Ty, Tyler Boyd can do. Everything that they can do. And he can take a slant to the house. 
And that's Which he did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when, when you can, and, and I forget who I wrote this about, but when you have the ability as a wide receiver to turn slants into home runs, you know, yeah. that that's a different level. And the other thing to keep in mind here, when we spin this back to Burrow, when you were talking about Higgins and his yardage after the catchability is to make the first guy miss. I am adamant in my belief that yardage after the catch is in part a quarterback stat. Because when you make throws on time with anticipation, you know, when you're throwing that eight-yard curl route, but it's on time in rhythm. And so when the receiver stops to come back to the ball, the ball is already in flight. And the five yards of separation you get off the break is still there at the catch time. That's that's critical. Because think about Mitchell Trubisky and that Bears offense when Trubisky was in Chicago. They were running so many of these routes designed to get yardage after the catch, but because the ball comes out late, the eight-yard catch is a nine-yard gain. When it should be the eight-yard catch is a 15-yard gain because of the yardage after the catch, which is on the quarterback. And that's what Burrow does well. Yeah. He makes these throws on time, in rhythm, with anticipation. So it gives the guy a chance to catch, secure, and make a football move. And I would argue Baker Mayfield has some ups and downs in that area as well. Yeah. Um, so the slants, the overs, the crossing routes, they should be getting more yards than they are. All right. So, Greg, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson in Miami. Is that a good decision for Miami? <laughs> I have the piece written. It's written at USA Today already. And I'm just <laughs> waiting for it to go and push send it. My ultimate, my ultimate conclusion on it is this. If Miami does make this trade, there are there is a reason to do it between the lines. Because when you're looking at Tua Tagovailoa right now and Deshaun Watson, your hope is that on the field between the lines, Tua can become Watson. So your hope is, well, maybe Tua gets there, or maybe you just go get the guy you hope he can be right now. That's the on-the-field issue. On the field, sure. But this isn't an on-the-field alone decision. There are other things that have to go into it. One, if you decide after less than a full season to just give up on Tua after drafting him, and this isn't a new regime has come in, new coaches come in, new, this is the same group of decision makers, that calls into question your entire thought process to begin with, right? If you're ready to just sort of cut bait, move on, what does that tell you about this organization from a developmental standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from a decision-making standpoint? That's issue number one. And issue number two is the big one. You're talking about somebody that is facing a litany of sexual assault allegations. And to give up what you would have to give up, according to the reports, in terms of draft capital, for somebody that may literally never play a down again, because of the uncertainty around this and the allegations and the seriousness of these allegations, that's a mind blowing decision to make. And I don't think, and I know we're going to talk about the specific Watson stuff in a second, but I don't think you as an organization can feel comfortable making that kind of move. I just don't see how you can do it to give up the draft capital. It would cost to get a player that legitimately may not see the field again, or at least may not see it for a while. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I I kind of descri described it as Miami's ownership and, and executive leadership have this dysmorphic view of their organization as if yeah. like they're looking in the mirror and they see a playoff team that could go deep if they added Deshaun Watson as if like they are this like they 
like they're in shape, they're ready to go to the beach, but all they need is a great bathing suit, you know, yeah. and they're ready to go. When in fact, they actually need a personal trainer, um, a new diet, and probably a, a few months before okay. they can. This analogy is starting to hit home a little too close for me, my friend. Because, well, I'm already home, so it's I mean, okay. I'm just like, oh, I'm starting to think, you know, oh, wait, oh, but, I gotta hey, do some stuff hey. with it. But I mean, it, it's one of those things. It's either that, you know, and I, because when I look at this, to me, do they have a defense? They again, they have some key figures in the defense who are pretty good, but do they have a complete defense? Is this like? Is this like the, you know, early 2000s Baltimore Ravens who just needed a quarterback, you know? No, not remotely close. You know, they've got Xavier Howard. He's great. Javon Holland looks like an up-and-comer in terms of a safety. They certainly have, you know, some pass rush that, they you know, that's pretty good. But the linebacker play, you know, still has, has its ups and downs. This offensive line still has its ups and downs. The round game, you know... They can figure out who they want to really use. You know, Miles Gaskin seems to be pretty darn good, but it, they don't feel like they're comfortable with an every down back. They don't have receivers, you know, that I would say. You know, they have one in name, but again, he's the Chicada. So they, yeah. we look at this, and I just think you get Deshaun Watson, and what you're getting is you're moving him from the Houston Texans to the Houston Texans South Beach, which yeah. is basically he's going to be good enough if he's not distracted <laughs> to be able to get this team to a play um, to a wild card and then they're going to lose because they don't when they face the top teams they don't have enough of the surrounding talent so and then what you paid as a cost to get him you're what do you 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 better luck out or have unbelievable you know ability to find players who are you know, who no one else thought were good and or that they slipped to you somehow. But considering that you have a good young quarterback that you're willing to ditch to the side of the road tells me that you may not know, you may not be that good at being yeah. able to discern. And maybe your co maybe your scouts are like, we're begging you not to, to trade for Deshaun Watson, at least privately when they're, you know, going to the bar yeah. somewhere and, and drowning their sorrows after the day at the office. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I just, I think it's kind of mind blowingly stupid that they're, that they're going after a guy, especially when you have something like what you said, all the, all the issues. And, you know, was as someone with legal training, you know, although it's not specialized in labor, Mark, you know, I'd love to know what your thoughts are about when Greg Rosenthal thinks the NFL's handling of Watson right now, where they're not suspending him, he might get a trade. He's going to get to approve where he wants to go, you know. And Greg says this is just absolutely infuriating. The NFL needs to put a stop to this or change this. Is he right about that? I I, I think Greg has a really important point here, and you know, again, I I, I dabbled in employment law, but didn't do a ton of it, but. This is a situation that, and I, I read it recently, that it's just typical. Goodell doesn't want to make a decision until he absolutely has to. And that's, he's just kind of throwing his hands up until he's forced to, and he might be forced to in the next week or so, make some sort of determination that he has to go on the suspension list or the exemption list or 
you know, however they want to handle it. And I know people will say, well, he hasn't been convicted of anything. Well, they did it with Roethlisberger. They did it with Elliot, like when they were just civil allegations or just other sort of even non-civil allegations. They hadn't come to that point yet. They stepped in because, and the language that Goodell used was, as an NFL player, you have to hold yourself and we have to hold you to a higher standard. And I don't think 22 sexual assault allegations in the civil realm that they're in right now is evidence of somebody holding themselves to a higher standard. Now, look, he's entitled to his day in court and to contest these. And, you know, the people that have raised these allegations, these serious allegations, are also entitled to their day in court. But it's also important to remember, as somebody that practiced civil law, we're at a different time scale here, friends. Like, this is not right to a speedy trial situation. You're talking about d- discovery and depositions. And I, it's my understanding that these depositions aren't even scheduled until January. Like, there's, there's not going to be a quick resolution. I also know that, you know, my first legal skills advisor in law school, uh, professor and lawyer, very smart man, taught me my first month of law school. If a case goes to trial, whether criminal or civil, it's because one of the lawyers screwed up, you know, because the adversarial litigation process is designed the way it is to get parties to resolve them via settlement, because you never know what a judge is going to do in terms of evidentiary rulings. I could tell you horror story after horror story after horror story of strange jury verdicts, like the one that I'll mention where a colleague's dad was a, a county attorney and he was prosecuting a guy that stole some steaks from a grocery store and they pulled all the receipts from all the, the, the cash registers. Steaks were never paid for. They had them on camera. Steaks were never paid for. They see him, you know, sh- shoved them under his jacket, walked out. Steaks were never paid for. No receipt. Found not guilty at trial. He goes to pull the jury afterwards. He's like, what, what else did you need? Juror raises his hand. We wanted to see the steaks. It was months later. It was months later. The steaks were rotten in the garbage, but they wanted to see the steaks. That's what juries can sometimes do. I had a jury tell me that the reason why they ruled in my client's favor after a trial was my shoes were dirty. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Well, we thought that, you know, I, I like that about you because it showed you that you're a hardworking guy. And it made me have more faith in what you were doing and what you were trying to tell me. And I'm like, my <laughs> shoes were dirty? But that's the kind of stuff that happens. And so you don't want to put your faith in a jury or a judge, you can't control that. You can't control a settlement. So discovery often leads to settlements. But again, that's January and February. That's a lot of uncertainty. And now as we approach this trade deadline in an organization like, say, the Miami Dolphins or the Carolina Panthers is on the verge of giving up multiple future first-round picks to acquire a player with this uncertainty handing over their head, you feel like the league has to step in because of everything that's going on, the allegations themselves, which are extremely serious, the conduct that's complained of, which is extremely serious, and the fact that organizations now may tie themselves to this player, and if it turns out that ha- something has to happen, you know, and he doesn't play again or misses a t- season or two, you know, that's going to impact them. Like, you would think that the commissioner would step in and say, okay, we're putting them on the suspension list or the exempt list for the rest of this season. You can still trade for him and hope that he's back next year. But you got to factor this in now. Now it's just uncertainty, and I don't think that's helpful for the league, for its image, for these teams across the board. So I agree with Greg. He's absolutely right. They, they need to do this differently. Yeah, it's a fascinating situation because, you know, the only argument that I could make on the opposite end of the spectrum, I would think, is, well, 
these are all supposed to be adults in the room in terms yeah, of the people making the decisions. You buy it. Yeah. And and on top of it, he is innocent until proven guilty, even though, you know, in the media, when you see all this stuff, we're more prone to believe the accusations. I mean, we, we are. That's just generally how that goes. And for good or for bad, you know, and, you know, when you have that many accusations, it does look pretty bad for the, <laughs> for Deshaun Watson in that yeah. regard. But it's it's one of those things that still at the end of the day, if he's proven innocent, he has the right to work, you know, right. and he's innocent until proven guilty. So doesn't he have the right to work now until they've, in, you know, has he been arrested? Has he been detained? You know, th those are the things that, you know, the way they've made these rules, the fact that they want to let that Roger Goodell decide to legislate this stuff early on in ways that the NFL didn't do before and get involved in this behavior in a way that they didn't before, um, you know, kind of opens the pen, the bot the Pandora box of all these issues where now we do have calls for like, well, now someone has to get involved and, and govern the players in a way that we weren't doing before. And I'm not saying it was wrong beforehand, you know, that they were doing it wrong before they got in, intervened, but I'm just saying, stating that as a fact that they intervened. So now it's creating more calls for intervention and, you know, do, and it raises that question of, do you leave it alone or do you not? I don't know the right answer to that. I just know that that's where we are. And when I, you know, so the part, but part of me does look at it and go, I, I would prefer it to be that we're adults. That's where I'd look at it. Is I prefer us to be adults in the room. And if Miami isn't adult enough to understand the, the risks, or they are, and they, they look at it and go, maybe they, they've seen enough or talked, you know, monitored the situation enough that maybe they feel like, as they read the tea leaves here, that they think that the evidence isn't strong enough for, for these um, plaintiff, plaintiffs to have a case. And it's going to end up getting settled in a way that's favorable for Watson. And they're going to take the chance on that, even though, you know, there's a lot in the media, a lot in the media that would make you wonder otherwise. So, you know, if they make that choice and it works out for them, then yeah, they're suddenly the Houston Texans in the, in the top of the Deshaun Watson era. And they get, they're going to get the Jersey sales after the initial outcry. Cause you know, people are going to buy his Jersey. And the merchandise sales are a big deal in the NFL. They're going to get a bump in ticket sales because they don't have a true superstar that appeals to the average fan as great as Xavier Howard can be and as, and as good as some of the players that they do have on their teams. You know, So as a result for them, from a business perspective, they, they like that. Do I personally think it's, it, you know, that it's distasteful to see all of this? Absolutely. You know, but it's a public sphere deal. And sometimes we have these situations that occur that that if, for instance, Deshaun Watson is found, um, maybe not found innocence, but the charge, the charges are basically dropped or they don't go anywhere, then, you know, you're talking more about rights, not necessarily what you like or dislike right. or what you prefer, you know. So, I, you know, I don't know. It's a tough deal. I... I was very curious where you where you stood with it, and I and I and I get where you're coming from. I just think it's a complicated situation. Yeah, I mean, sure. it absolutely 100 is a complicated situation. I just think with the volume of accusations, 
you know, there's and not to get too legal here, but like pattern part and pattern behavior, like that, that's something like that there's evidentiary rules where stuff like that would be allowed to come in um, because it's just a volume of incidents where you've done this before. And so I, I think that weighs heavily on my mind. It's not one, one person, one accusation. Yeah. It's 22. And the fact that it's been kind of quiet on that front, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not going to read anything into that. That doesn't make me think one way or the other on it. It's just civil litigation is a slower moving process. Yeah. And the fact that stuff's not scheduled till the end of the season, you know, I, that's what's got me kind of keyed in on the idea that the league should just do something either way. They might come out and say, look, you know, we're going to let this process play out. So until something happens in the civil litigation, we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Like they could do that too. And I think that's probably, to me, that may be the wisest choice is just to say, you know, we just think until there, until this is settled, he's on the books, Texans. You can't yeah. move him. You know, you you know, this is this is where it is. This is where yeah. it's at, and and leave it at that. And I think that's probably the the way that I would look at it is just to maybe to protect and that's the way of protecting the integrity of the league but it's still it still yeah. argues against that everyone's adults in the room who are making this deal and understand the risks so it's a it's a tough yeah. situation so you know speaking of adult guys who you know we joke that usually the coaches are a little bit on the older side though we have certain exceptions who are great Nick Sirianni kind of looks like a kid you know but he's absolutely an adult but you know, thoughts on his scheme and whether it's getting the best from Jalen Hurts. There's a there's a former scout on Twitter who was kind of, you know, wasn't necessarily railing, but criticized Nick Sirianni's scheme, saying that it really wasn't getting the best out of Hurts and that it wasn't playing the matchups as well. It's asking him to read levels and, and look at things in a manner that may not be the best for Hurts. And when I looked at it in the spring, I mean, the first thing I thought, and I thought, uh-oh, was when Sirianni said, nope, we're not going to do anything that is specialized for Hertz to make him, to get the best out of what he does well. We're going to f ask him to play up to our scheme. Yeah, and that's never a good thing. You know, I mean, I'm very much of the mind that when you get a young quarterback, you go to his college coaches, you go to his high school coaches, you go to him and say, look, what do you want to run? And, and you fit your scheme to what he likes to do. What's interesting, though, the idea of him reading levels and things like that, that's where I thought he'd be best at. Like when, when I went back and watched him in Oklahoma, when I saw him at the Senior Bowl, I had in mind like a Bruce Arians type offense where it's, you know, three level flood to one side, backside sort of shallow or vert or post. And he can pick his sort of matchup and read it out if he wants to because it's condensed to one side of the field or take the one on one backside, which you know, a lot of what Arians does is kind of rooted in that philosophy. I always thought that. Hertz was more suited for a vertical passing game than sort of some quick game air raid West coast, like hybrid that Sirianni seems to be running as well. I mean, you see a lot of shallow concepts, a lot of quick game stuff. I think it's an offense though, without an identity. And I think they're trying to paper that over with some RPO stuff, but defenses have gotten really good at clouding the picture. You know, a lot of what they try to do in the RPO game is, you know, pre-snap box counts, where if you've got numbers, you run it. If you don't, you throw it. The teams have gotten really good. Carolina did it. The Raiders did it this past week. Cloud in the pitcher with that overhand guy. 
and putting him in this mission where you don't know quite sure if you want to run it or not. So you pull late and then he gets under the slant. Now you're trying to make a tougher throw than you thought you'd have to make. And Hertz doesn't have sort of the ball placement right now to make that throw. He had one to Devonta Smith that was catchable perhaps, but it's like still behind him. And it's like, it's cause he's trying to, put the puzzle together going down the highway at 70 miles an hour. And so I, I don't think that's helping him. I, I think they need to do some more traditional play action stuff with him instead of like the RPO using that as sort of a bandaid for play action. They need to move him around more. He's certainly somebody that is fallen victim to that bailing from clean pockets. And I know the offensive line hasn't protected him as, as well as they could have, but he's certainly speeding things up and, vacated some clean pockets, wants to live on the outside. So move him around a little bit, call some boots, some wide zone stuff, move him around. I think there are things they could do better in terms of helping him. But I also have my reservations that that's going to be enough to get him where he needs to be. And you're already seeing the Eagles trade Joe Flacco. Now Minshew's QB two. They're on pace right now to have three of the top six picks. And maybe there isn't a quarterback you'd pick in the top six of this draft. And we'll talk about that in a second, I'm sure. Um, but with three picks in the top, say five, six or seven, you're probably going to take quarterback at some point. And so you can see sort of the handwriting on the wall. And then do you trust Sirianni to develop the next guy? So it's kind of a mess up and fill. Yeah. I'm wondering about their receivers, to be honest with you, because when you look at yeah. their receiver choices over the years, and it's, so I wonder if it's more than just a coach input thing, I wonder about the scouting group. I wonder, and more, not so much the scouts, but more so the executive team involved yeah. here. Because when you look at the wide receivers they've picked, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, he's big. He's supposed to be able to make contested catches. But he's kind of like a slower Alshon Jeffrey in like size style. He's not a separator, you know. Then you have a bunch of small extremely fast players who can separate, but can they win against bump and run? Can they right. win when they get, when they're at the boundary and can, can they play outside? Cause they, to me, I look at Devonta Smith and the more I watch him, the, the criticisms come to light. I know that there's been, there were early excitement, especially from the Eagles media who are like, you know, who do great work, but they're kind of like, look, here's a play where he got, yeah, but I've seen about five or six more plays where he gets pinned to the sideline and he can't get free. He's out of bounds. They they run him out of bounds or he just can't get past him or he doesn't have the the strategic sense yet to avoid getting pinned in the first place. And who are the players that can do that who are fast? I mean, Quez Watkins, they, they keep on the inside because he's more yep. of an inside two-way go guy because he hasn't developed that skill. And so, and then you have Rager, who was never designed to be that guy, you know, when you look at his skills, skill set. I just think that they, it's like they have one side or the other, but they don't have the, the player that ties everything together with their receiving core. And they need one to two of those types of players who can do those, be um, versatile enough to help Hurts out. Because otherwise defenses can say, Listen, we want Devonta Smith wide. We yeah. want Jalen Rager wide. We want Quez Watkins wide. We want Jalen. We want JJ Arthega Whiteside on the field. We yeah. just want him on the field. You know, thank you for putting him on the field for us. You know, and as a result of that, you 
that's part of the lack of identity with this offense. That hurts the quarterback, you know, it, because who's who's coming open? And yeah. now it, it plays into the longer Jalen Hurts gets stays alive, the more likely he's going to try and ma- he's going to make a mistake because he's trying to make something happen instead of just get rid of the ball. Um, or he's going to be forced to run a lot, you know, and then at that point there's diminishing returns um, because he's a very good runner, but he's not Lamar Jackson. If you let right. him get into the secondary, it's all over. So, so yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on this is from the wide receiver angle. So who's a college prospect you've watched who's intrigued or impressed you right now? I, I've been talking about it for a while, but Kenny Pickett, um, he had this – he had this statement game this weekend, right? Like, like we've been waiting for one of these quarterbacks to put together that sort of statement game. We thought we might get it, Matt Corral, you know, at Alabama. That didn't ha- quite happen. And while Corral has been very good, you know, he certainly he had six interceptions against Arkansas last year, five against LSU. He threw his first pick of the season in that crazy game against Tennessee two weeks ago. He didn't. He didn't have. He didn't put together the statement game. This was Kenny Pickett against the Brett Venables defense that has caused some other quarterbacks some problems. We saw it with Justin Fields. We've seen some other quarterbacks struggle against what Brett Venables does. Goes out with all the spotlight on him in that game, throws two touchdowns, and Pittsburgh wins. And it was a very impressive performance. He moves well in the pocket. He throws well inside the pocket, outside the pocket, on the move. He understands leverage. He uses his eyes extremely well. He, When they needed him down the stretch, he had some big runs for them to ice that game away. I, I was... I was very excited this past Saturday. We didn't have any baseball games I needed to coach. We didn't have anything going on. So I cleared my day. I watched that game in the afternoon. Then I cut down a tree at night. But it was a tremendous performance. And I was very impressed with Kenny Pickett this weekend. So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep talking about this kid. He has some opportunities coming up. You know, he's got a big game against UVA a little later. Uh, Brennan Armstrong, the left-handed quarterback for UVA, has been very good. I've been kind of intrigued by him. And he certainly has another opportunity to go up against Sam Howell at UNC in a couple of weeks. I think that's, or I think, I don't know if that's at UNC or at Pitt, but he's played himself, I think, into the first round pick conversation at this point. Yeah, like it, like it. Drake London out of USC. Yeah, I'm watching him six five two ten. You know, I finally got a chance to watch a few games of his um, this weekend, and at first I'm like, man, he's dropping the ball, and. And I was worried about that. And then I started looking at the scope of the, the the games that I watched and the number of contested plays that he made versus the number of drops that he had. And I was a little more forgiving of him dropping the ball. Um, he's someone who I've heard a couple people, well, not heard. When I look up Drake London to look up injury history and I see immediately on Google, Drake London getting comp to Mike Evans, you know, things like that. You know, I've, I've certainly seen that some of the Mike Evans comps. I don't know if he's there, but he certainly, I know he's not there, but he has some quickness to him to get off the line of scrimmage. He understands how to use his hands and feet in a variety of ways to be able to break open. I think he has to work on his, his breaks a little bit more, get a little more bend, but it's not something out of the realm of possibility for his game. And he does work hard to work open. He's someone who's also good at, you know, I think he's a good blocker. So he has an all-around game that I think is in that Michael Pittman, Mike Evans kind of yeah. spectrum. It just depends on, you know, I need to see more to see where he lands. So I was 
overall, I was at first I was taught so I was do, doing one of his games and saw his first game, and one of my friends called. It was Bob Harris, and, and oh, Bob yeah. Harris and I were talking, and he goes, "What are you doing right now? Are you watching tape?" I said, "Yeah, I'm watching some receiver who's supposed to be really good and." He's dropping the ball all over the place. So he's like, eh. and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see more how it goes. But I wound up liking him. And I think he's a cool. he's a guy who can be a contributor right away for a team, um, depending on how they use him. How about a player that you've been watching that maybe you were looking forward to or heard good things about, but maybe there's some things that you're like, eh, not so fast quite yet. I need, either need to see more or I wasn't as impressed. I mean, the, the easy answer here is Spencer Rattler. Um, and I was pretty much very much on shaky ground with Rattler before he got benched. Um, you see some of the decisions and throws he made against Tulane, some of the decisions and throws he made against Nebraska. I mean, he was getting bailed out by flags. He was just, just situational awareness seemed to be lacking to begin with. Um, you know, and then he throws the interception against West Virginia and, you know, the crowd's chance for Caleb Williams, the, the backup. And I thought, you know, after in the second half of that West Virginia game, and then the next week against Kansas State, I thought he played well, um, but it certainly wasn't what we expected him to be. I mean, he, he came in with QB one buzz, right? That's what people thought he was going to be QB one, either Hammer Howell, and it hasn't quite obviously didn't really click for him. And I'd expect Mel Kiper Jr. was out today saying he expects him. He doesn't even have him in the top ten, and he anticipates that Rattler will transfer and. I think we'll be talking about him next draft cycle, maybe at Mississippi or, or somewhere else. And then Malik Willis. Um, I, I still think Willis is a first-round talent, but he's had some bad games the past couple of weeks. You know, three interceptions two weeks ago, three or three weeks ago, three interceptions the following week, played a little bit better this past week. You know, he'll have an opportunity at the start of November to go down to to Mississippi and, and take on Matt Corral and Lane Kiffin and company. So, you know, maybe that's his sort of breakout statement game, but – you know, there's a lot of people that say, look, you know, we just saw Trey Lance, raw, talented, athletic, big arm type guy go three overall. Yeah, but Lance also threw no interceptions his, his first full year as a starter. And yes, it's FCS. Yes, you're at the Alabama of the FCS level playing at NDSU, but Malik's turning the ball over a ton. And, you know, that's going to scare some teams away. You know, it, bad enough you're going in on the, athleticism and the traits and the, the, the hope for development, but you've got to train that out of, and that is going to scare some teams. Yeah. That certainly scared me off when I watched him the first few times. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I appreciate the athletic ability. Absolutely. But his decision-making, you know, there's the combination of hero ball underestimation of, you know, of what's going on with the defense, you know, and there are just a number of things that you'd like to see him, progress past at this point so yeah he's yeah. a guy i've still got more to watch you know i could pick a couple of guys david bell is someone i really liked coming out and was very impressed with him and i'll say that his his ability to separate has some i'm a little concerned about that um and i'm not usually you know overly emphasizing the physical but you know i think there's some ability to separate there but i still have more to see so i'm not going to go too far on him. But the guy who I keep hearing lots about is Garrett Wilson out of Ohio State. A lot yeah. of people like Garrett Wilson. And, you know, I watched a few games of his. 
And I wasn't quite as impressed on my first impression yet. And I've got probably another 10 to 12 games to watch. But what usually in those first few games, you see enough that you think, okay, you, you know, it, it gives you some idea of some things. And, and <coughs> Dan Hatman, I had a quick text conversation with Dan Hatman. So I'm going to give you my quick little scouting report because he asked me what I thought of Wilson. And I said, you know, he's patient but sudden with footwork. He has a variety of patterns with his upper and body, lower body releases. So that's good. He can get off the line pretty well in terms of technique against college players. But when he faces top college players, he needs to exaggerate the feet a little bit more to sell it. So he's got to do a better job of really being more patient with his before he hits the sudden button to get past guys. He shoots his hands too fast. So what happens is you can tell he hasn't really learned these techniques enough to use his feet first, force the defender to shoot his hands, and then shoot his hands. It's more like he's someone who's been taught, first you use your feet, then you use your hands to do this particular pattern. And he hasn't figured out the timing yet to do it. But once he gets into the open area, he's got the vertical speed. You know, he's a quick stopper, which you love because that, that the physical skills there. He has a, the, the problem though, is he's not in control of his feet yet. So when you break, especially on speed breaks, on outs and in breaks, dig routes, things like that, he doesn't know how to really get that drive step, which is right after the, the breaks at that long step you see in the stem, that, that step after that where you turn, it's unsteady for him. And then he's off balance as he turns a lot. You see him struggling to maintain his balance on those plays, though he comes back to the ball well. So when you have like curls and stop routes, hitches like that, he comes back well to attack the ball, um, but he's someone that he also needs to show a little bit more awareness on zone routes, especially in tight coverage. He has to be aware of when to settle. Sometimes he runs himself into to yeah. coverage that he shouldn't. And he and the thing that really concerns me about him is that he leaves his feet for the ball unnecessarily. Like, you know, when you see guys jump for passes that are at chest level or at helmet level and you have that hop, it hurts your transition. You end up fighting the ball a little bit because you're not sure where the ball's going to be. So it's really a point of tracking as opposed to actually more than anything else. And he's not confident in how he's tracked the ball. And then he claps at the catch point too often, which again, there are players who get away with that. Cortland Sutton is okay. He seems to manage it even though he's gotten better at it. He's still claps his hands on the ball. And there's times where what Wilson does in his specific brand of clapping is that he extends for the ball. And then just as the ball's coming, he tries to close his hands on it. So it's this kind yeah. of like extend and then close. The extension's, the extension's good. The clap isn't. And so, you know, uh, we could make a funny, we could make a bad venereal disease jo joke about the clap. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but, um, but you need to see him, you know, win pivotal targets and I feel like every time I've seen him in a situation with a pivotal target that could change the outcome of the game or an outcome of a series where it's like, you've got to win this to continue the yep. series, he drops the ball. And so I'm, I'm waiting. There's probably tape where he's making those plays, but I haven't seen it yet. And when, it, when I've seen games where he needed to do it and he didn't, that's a little bit concerned. So my first impression is that he's an early round athlete. He's a second day technician. And he's third day when it comes to key issues with playmaking. 
So I'm not that impressed. I hope that I see more that changes my mind as the season goes along. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with, with old Garrett Wilson of Ohio State. Um, so are the Cardinals a legitimate Super Bowl contender or do you see them as a one-and-done playoff team with an appealing undefeated record? I think they're a legitimate team. Okay. I, I'm I'm going to start probably tonight or tomorrow writing about why I'm buying in. And I know I obviously the the focus is Kyler Murray. The focus is the offense. The focus is A.J. Green and DeAndre Hopkins. It's their defense which makes them legitimate in my mind. I mean, you're talking about – and look, this is just one sort of set of rankings, and I don't think they've started – no, they actually have started weighing them now. But they're number two in total defense DVOA, defense value, defense value added over – Whatever it is, DVOA and Football Outsiders. Calling They're number Aaron two Chats. in it. Calling Aaron Chats. Yeah, exactly, Aaron. You know, remind me what it is. Um, but they're number two in total DVOA on defense. Number two in weighted DVOA on defense. Number two in pass defense. Number seven in run defense. They're a legitimate defense this year. Isaiah Simmons has sort of started to take on more of an understanding. He's being a bit more disruptive underneath in zone coverage situations. They're getting contributions up front from guys like Golden, from Hicks, from J.J. Watt, who's giving them some pressure on the interior, which is allowing guys like Golden and Hicks on the outside to get home for sacks. I mean, you've got right now Hicks has three, Golden has six. Chandler Jones obviously still there. He's got five of his own. They can get after you up front. They can play – They've gotten better play in the secondary than I think people were expecting. A lot of people, you know, preseason looked at their secondary, looked at their corners and said they can't cover anybody. Well, they've been a lot better than people thought. Granted, look, you know, they haven't played the best offenses in recent weeks. They played Houston last week, who kind of hung with them for a while, though eventually Arizona pulled away. They played Cleveland two weeks ago. We we know the struggles that Cleveland has had, the injury that Baker Mayfield is dealing with, the 49ers. That was Trey Lance's first start, but they handled the Rams pretty well. Beat Tennessee back in week one. Minnesota, that was a one-point game with a missed field goal, but that's a very good Minnesota offense that I think people are kind of not really paying that much attention to because of their win-loss record, but Kirk Cousins has been playing well. And so I look at their defense and what they've done so far, and I'm buying in. Yeah, I think I think this is – when you explain the schedule – it reaffirms to me that this was a worthwhile question to ask because they're at that point where you could do a good over under on one and done. Yeah. You know, if you were to bet on this, because you look at the teams that they faced and it's like a lot of those teams I could see being one and done, but they're at that tipping point where you could, you would entirely expect them to be in the second round or, and if they, and then maybe be, you know, the Rams you could see being in the championship game. Yeah. You know, the Titans you could probably see being in the second round. And if they get to the they get to the championship game, it's a, an upset. But, you know, they're a pretty good team. Um, and that's kind of where I think the Cardinals are, is I think I, I could see them getting into the second round of the playoffs. And, and I like, you know, offensively you could still nitpick certain things, but adding Zach Ertz, Gives you another dimension. Yep. Um, you know, they have so much depth at wide receiver and what they're able to do with them. Their ground game is coming alive to the extent that they know what to do with James Conner and um, Chase Edmonds. They're, they're yep. divvying the carries well. They're finding good use for these guys. So the offense, at least in the mindset of what they're, they're doing, is clicking right now. Um, they're going to be tested a little bit more at some point, I think, where... 
were in a way that they haven't. And that's going to... At the same time, like, looking at their schedule, like, they get Green Bay this week, a short week at home, Devontae Adams is out due, due to COVID. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, it's a, obviously a tough game, but it looks a little bit easier. You go to San Francisco the week after that, San Francisco's floundering right now. Then you get Carolina at home, and then you get Seattle on the road. Yeah. Who knows if Russell Wilson's back. They could roll into the bye 11-0. and They could. And then coming out of the bye at Chicago, the obviously the big game, they've got two big games. They'll have the Rams at home, at Detroit, Indy at home, then at Dallas in week 17. I mean, that yeah. will probably, that could, I mean, that could be number one seed kind of game. It could, you know, be. That could be on the line in week 17, but then they finish at home against Seattle. Those are all games they could win. They are all games they can win. The toughest defense there are the Bears, you yeah. know, and, and that, but they don't, the Bears just don't have the offense at this point yet to really to be a deal. But at the same yeah. time, the Bears can run the ball. And if the Bears can run the ball and get enough, you know, and stop, and stop this offense, you know, as weird as it sounds, they could be the team there. But I just, yeah, when I look at that, now I'm more affirmed that I could see this team not having been tested well enough that when they get in the playoffs, maybe I'm going to narrative street here, that they get in the playoffs <laughs> and they like, and they wind up, you know, facing an opponent that punches them in the mouth in a way that they yeah. haven't faced. But it's, but at the same time, then you have the momentum of, you know, we're great and, you know, yeah. but I, I just like to see a team tested a little bit more. But again, we'll see. So speaking of like moments like this, you know, I watch Kyle Pitts, you know, pretty much all season. He's done a great job. He's he's one of the top rookies, obviously, in the league. He against the Jets, they really used him as a primary weapon because they had to. And they used him inside now, but he really got a lot of work on the inside. And I started thinking, this is probably a guy right now. Eventually, he can be that Kelsey type of player that you can put on the outside, and he can be the cornerback. But running slants with him right now, the Jets were getting the better of him for the most part. And then when they gave him two-way goes, he really started thriving in that offense. Um, and at least against the Jets. But then against the Dolphins, you know, yeah, early in the game. Eric Rose getting spanked, you know, because they're running these corner routes from the inside and he can win with his size and with his speed and he's got the reach and all of that. But then late in that game, they put Pitts against Xavier Howard on the outside and he beat Howard for a long reception. And I saw that and thought, that's the moment the NFL um, scouts and coaches are going to look at that and go, He's, a, he's the Falcons' primary weapon, and we have to put our best guy on him, and we have to do more than just leave him one-on-one -on, -one on the outside. We're going to have to do more with him than we even think about with Calvin Ridley. Is there are, Do you believe there are pivotal moments where the league sees something on tape like that and makes that switch to game plan against a player? Do you, do you believe that what I'm saying, that that's a moment where the, team, where the NFL would do that? Absolutely. And I think that moment had already happened because you mentioned the first vertical route, the one against Eric Rowe, you know, vertical route up yeah. the left side where he just got separation, more than enough separation he needed. Ryan made a very good throw, the one-handed catch. So then when you get into crunch time, two-minute warning, you know, it's a one-point game or whatever it was at the time, 
they flex him out wide. Why ISO? You take Xavier Howard, your best cover corner, and you put him on him. So the Dolphins, in their mind, they had already seen enough. They're like, True. look, we've got to take our best guy and put him on Pitts at this point. And then Pitts wins the rep. Not only against Howard, where he gets enough separation, Ryan makes a great throw. Safety got in position. So it was a really one versus two moment. Pitt still makes the catch. This is this is the kind of play that when people like me said he's not only tight end one, he's wide receiver five in this class. Even up against the guys like Chase and Waddle and all them, yep. as good as those guys are, he's still an X receiver that you could rank fifth overall ahead of some other receivers in this class because he's going to make defenses now. We, as we just talked about, they're going to have to pick their poison. They're going to have to pick their poison. He's that matchup type of player where, okay, you see him why ISO. You're not running your strong safety out there. You're taking your best man coverage corner, hopefully somebody with size, and you're walking them out there. It's the same thing, and I knew this was what we were going to see when early in the game against South Carolina, they go why ISO with him, Florida does, and you see J.C. Horn walk across the field to cover him. And they go back shoulder, and they beat him. And then they tried some other guys, South Carolina did. He got two touchdowns. They were just like, forget it. JC, wherever he goes, you go. When you start seeing that at the college level, you're certainly going to see it at the pro level. We're seeing that now with Pitts. This is what, you know, all of us who loved Kyle Pitts coming out and called him the unicorn and all that stuff. This is what we were talking about. Because now, you know, you start thinking ahead. Well, when they play teams, they're going to take their best coverage corners. They're going to put them on Kyle Pitts. That opens up opportunities for Calvin Ridley and everybody else in that offense for Patterson out of the backfield. Because now you've got two matchup problems yeah. that Arthur Smith can play with. So how do you handle those two? Like, yeah. how do you handle a situation where Pitts is on the outside, Patterson's in the slot? Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's going to open up so much stuff. I know Doug Ferrar, he talked to, to Matt Ryan a couple of times already this year, uh, uh, watching some film, talking about Kyle Pitts and, you know, Matt said, look, when Pitts figures it out, like it's going to be it's going to be tough for other teams. And that's what you're seeing now, what they can do with these types of matchup nightmares. This could be a very good offense down the stretch. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm a big believer that Calvin Ridley is not a natural number one receiver. I think he's a very good receiver, but I don't think he's the guy you want making the types of plays that you're going to ask Kyle Pitts to make. And right. as a result of that, they found their new Julio. I mean, yep. I, I, and I don't say that lightly, you know. I mean, I know that Julio is a better route runner, Julio, you know, but Kyle Pitts isn't, Kyle Pitts is going to be able to function in the role that Julio provided Atlanta. And so, and give them a little more versatility because they can use him inside um, as well as a tight end. So, yeah, I love that. Um, what do you think about the media beginning to question Kyle Shanahan's personal decisions, personnel decisions as a coach? And then I, and part of that is I look at Dante Pettis. Obviously, I, I was a big fan of Pettis's game coming out. And he had, you know, listen, the Giants have nobody at wide receiver, so they needed to call him up. But every time they call him up, he produces. You know, it's not like they call up, you know, Nick Westbrook Akine, who's like, okay, but then when they really need him to play, there's no signs of life. You know, they bring in Dante Pettis and Dante Pettis, you know, you know, is throwing the ball, he's scoring, he's making big plays. Maybe he's not getting 100-yard days, but he's like 
showing that he has some skills. And I see that and I look at Brandon Ayuk and I joke and I see, you know, Kyle Posey joking that Matt, that Trey Sermon has been turned into a bikini wax inspector, um, you, you know, basically yep. on this team. And then you look at the, you know, you look at the RAS scores between Eli Mitchell and Trey Sermon and Trey Sermon before this last game, Trey Sermon was out producing Eli Mitchell on an efficiency standpoint in terms of the same number of similar number of touches. Um, and you look at all that and I think, you know, should Dante Pettis be looking, you know, I know he can't do it because the coaching fraternity is tight. So you can't point at it, but I'm sure there's a part of Dante Pettis wants to point West and say, look, I can play, you know, I can play. It wasn't, I can own some of my own stuff, but Shanahan's a play caller. I mean, Shanahan's a play designer, but maybe he's not a, um, maybe he's not a head coach that people are get should be giving the praise to that they are. I mean, so do you think there's some validation there? I think so. And I think this also shows us the power of the quarterback narrative because a lot of this stems from how they're handling Trey Lance. Cause there's a lot of people who are out there saying that Lance should be playing. You know what you have in Garoppolo and Shanahan's pushing back on that saying, look, it's not a true open competition. Like he's not going to be getting first team reps when he comes back. Like, and so that has now put people in a position of, well, maybe he doesn't know what he's doing from a personnel roster management standpoint. Now let's start looking at some other decisions. Dante Pettis, a lot of people, like you said, Brandon Ayuk, Trey Sermon, who we've been talking about on this show for a while now. And so the power of the quarterback narrative has sort of shifted the ground underneath Shanahan's feet, where now you're seeing pieces. Joe Marino wrote an insightful one this week. Is it time to start questioning, you know, is Kyle Shanahan on the hot seat at this point? Maybe not this year, but you've got people pointed out the fact that it's not like he has a winning record as a head coach. Like, you know, we've propped him up because he's a great offensive mind. And yes, he is. But maybe the ceiling for Kyle Shanahan is offensive coordinator. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No. We're only talking about 32 people in the world that can do the job. It's pretty darn great. Pretty darn good. It's a pretty, you know, exalted title to get. Like, so nothing wrong with being an offensive coordinator. I'm sure and I, I think Benjamin Solak was tweeting, you know, that a team should hire a nice, you know, team player-friendly head coach and then hire Vic Fangio and Kyle Shanahan as your defensive and offensive coordinator and just thrive. Yeah. Like, cause, cause you'll, those two guys, Fangio and Shanahan might best be suited for those kinds of roles. But as far as head coach making personnel decisions, maybe that's not Shanahan's strong suit. And look, I'm, I'm a Patriots guy. There are a lot of people looking at Bill Belichick and saying, certainly he's a brilliant defensive mind, great head coach, but Belichick, the GM and personnel guy, there are some gaps in that resume, too. Gaps that were papered over for two decades by Tom Brady. Yeah. Shanahan doesn't have a Brady to paper over roster mistakes and roster construction and personnel decisions with. And I think what we're seeing right now is that worm start to turn. Yeah. I think, you know, if we use the, the chef grocery analogy that's been long used. I mean, yep. uh, again, forgive me, real chefs out there who may be listening to this because I don't know. Scott but, McGill, who yeah. listens to this show. Great. Well, Scott, yeah. forgive us. You know, forgive me, especially when I say I don't know whether the sous chef is usually assigned to look for groceries, but I would say Kyle Shanahan would make a good sous chef as long as you don't ask him to shop for the produce. 
um, right. and for and for the and for any of the food. But tell him how you want it prepared, and you're good to go. But do yeah. not let him near a market. Do not let him near a market. That's what I would I would say. And don't let him manage. You know, don't let him manage food storage. Don't let him manage anything that has to do with anything. Just get the food in front of him and tell him yep. this is how I want it made. And I think that's where Kyle Shanahan excels. But he has some blind spots. And again, like you said, it shouldn't banish him from the NFL for good. He's he's going to be an asset to somebody down the line. But I think that he has a lot to learn from what we're seeing because he's he's getting rid of getting rid of good players or, or you know basically putting them in the background yeah. where he could be doing a lot more with them. But he might look at it and go, I don't like carrots, you know. Yeah. It, you know? It's like that image from Toy Story where the kid drops Woody into the bin. I don't want to play with you anymore. Yeah, pretty much. So, speaking of games, you know, because Kyle Shanahan certainly seems to be full of them, is what's your favorite arcade game as a kid? Because you you and I are around, uh, close enough to the same age that I'm sure you went to arcades yeah, before they yeah. had video games. And I had, okay. I'm going to talk about a couple of different video games, not just arcade games, because my gaming experience goes way back. My first, my favorite video game of all time, this is one of the first games I ever played, was a game called Zull. Okay? Uh, Do you remember Zull? Yes. A text-based role-playing game where you're in this, like, kingdom, and it's all text-based, like, no visual. Commodore 64. Yep. And you picked the role of a wizard, a warrior, or a thief, or something like that. And you had to go and find the black orb to save the place where you live. And I played that for hours. But, like, it was cooperative at times. You could play with somebody else. Like, you had, you know, the different characters that you could choose. Like, warrior versus thief had different attributes. A lot of the stuff you get in role-playing games now, you can trace back to Zone in the, the framework of that game so zol was certainly one then on the atari um the original atari my dad and i would play this game called joust for hours and you know being like an eight nine year old boy the basic premise of that game is you control ostriches your your character is riding on an ostrich and you had to fly around and literally sit your ostrich on the head of the people. And for an eight-year-old boy with his dad, the idea of sitting an ostrich butt on somebody else's head was just uproarious. Like I I, I just so we played that game for hours. So Zul and Joust were like the two games that I really sort of cut my teeth on. But when it comes to arcade games, there were two that I played just wherever they were. If I went to an arcade and these one or both of these games was there, I was spending 20, 30, 40 dollars. First was a baseball game. It was like World Series baseball or something like that. And it had this little sort of setup where it's got like this little metal stick that was a bat. Okay. And you would have to like pull it back. And on the game, the pitch would come in and you have to release it at the right time. And how you like released it and the timing of it and the angle of it would determine what kind of hit it was. And I just thought, this is this is incredible. I'm actually playing baseball. And it's, of course, it's still, you know, pixelated stick figures and stuff. But that game and then Karate Champ. Karate <laughs> Champ was my favorite. It was the, you know, fight. And then you're, you know, karate contests yeah. set in different areas. And you half point, full point. I could still hear those, you know, those, you know, cadences in my mind right now. Those were the two arcade games that I would play for hours. Well, it's funny. I played Joust a lot and loved it and was going to be one of my mentions. But as the arcade game, 
I used to play it ah, with the arcade yeah. game, and that was fun. Donkey Kong was certainly a fun one, but I really loved the Atari game Xevious, which was a spaceship that was flying over like the Earth. And yes. You were base, and there was always like all these different things being shot at you. So it wasn't like a lot of the games where you'd have like Space Invaders or or Galaga that were based on basically you're shooting one thing at a time, but yeah. only one thing's coming at you at a time or two or three things coming at you at a time. This game, there could be like 10 things coming at you at a time. And you had to kind of work through all of that and be able to see things peripherally, but still be able to act. So I really enjoyed that. Maybe that's why I like running backs. But, the, yep. you know, Xevious was like actually like being a running back. Then speaking of football, there used before even that, before arcades really got big, was that rollerball football with where the, the players were X's and O's. And you had to roll the ball to actually, um, or you had to roll this ball to actually move the key player and hit a button to hit the pass and run. It was such a basic version of football but it was a game that you would normally see probably in bars before they were in arcades um, because that's basically where those things would show up so um and my wild childhood i was in a i'd probably be six or seven and find myself in a bar playing that game so um, with the ashtray on one side and all of that but um those games were really cool um i love the the punch out the boxing yeah. game loved me punch out that was a fun game so yeah those were absolutely awesome ones. yeah i mean as far as football games go i'm, I'm scanning for because like i kind of put like football games in a different category but like there was one that i played during the 80s i don't know if it was like pro football simulator or something like that eric edholm and i had a discussion about it i, I might have to look and try to see if i can find it that way but it was just x's and o's that's all it was but you had basically full on NFL playbooks that they were working from. So you could like pour through these, like, again, it's all text based and X's and O's based, but you pour through like, you know, flood concepts and different kinds of passing concepts. I loved that one. And then prior to Madden, Joe Montana football. I, I mean, I probably, and I know my parents listen to the show and then they're not going to be happy to hear this, but I spent way too much time my freshman year of college still playing Joe Montana football on my first laptop that my parents bought me for a Black Friday sale my freshman year at Wesleyan. Um, sorry, <laughs> Mom and Dad. I mean, I, I was playing that. I drove back to school in the back seat. My friends John and Tom gave me a ride back uh, to campus, and I've got the laptop out playing Joe Montana football in the car. I mean, that's how much I played it. But, yeah, those two football games, like pre-Madden, were ones that I loved. And fourth and inches was another one. Well, too. you you know, you went to college to learn to basically get training for your career. Yeah, who I knew? mean, that's what college, who knew, who knew that's what, right? Yeah, See, exactly. that's like, Matt's bailing me out here. See, but like, yeah, playing computer and, video and, games. And it was hindsight. just, I was doing extra work to get ready for and, my eventual career. In hindsight, it was training. That's yeah, the way it was. Exactly. Hey, listen, I mean, that's the way I look at it with the Coleco head-to-head battery-powered game that I had as a seven-year-old back in 1977 where yeah. you could play offense and defense and you could play against someone with the dots that would move yeah. back and forth. I like that more than the Mattel game where they had the little switch. Oh, you know, yeah, which yeah. I, Everyone I knew had the green Mattel game where you could hit the switch to pass, you know, and it would it would shift. It would do a pre-snap shift for you and then you would pass it. But I like the Coleco game a little bit Did better. you ever do the, like, electronic football? 
Yes. Where you had the players on the field and you set up the formation and the guy oh, with yeah. the ball and you, the field shakes and the guys yeah. like shake downfield. Yeah. Oh yeah. Those that was great. And the ball you had to stuff the little foam ball yeah. into the arm and do that. Yeah. yeah. I love those things, but I could have spent hours around that, but it never seemed to work out all that great. But you know Yeah, because eventually everything just falls over and you're like, Oh, yeah. you gotta set it up again. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of tiresome, you know. Yeah. It was like army men gone wrong, you know. That's I was just gonna say that. It's like you spent hours setting up playing army men. You know, again, sh- yeah. showing our age here, Matt. But and then you like throw stones at the other side or whatever, and then you got to set it all up again and do it all over again. Well, listen, that this is a good ending point because we're media men gone wrong, and we certainly <laughs> enjoyed. We enjoy every minute of doing this, and we will set it up all over again next week for you at the RSP Quick Game. You can find Mark at Mark Schofield, me at Matt Waldman. We appreciate the reviews um, that you guys have made available you know given to us on the show and you know appreciate you guys following us and again um we just thank you for listening and we will see you next week